chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. May God bless and add his understanding to the reading of his holy word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will open your word to us today, that we may be sanctified in the truth through hearing the reading of your word, the singing, the proclaiming, the praying, And as we come to the table later, that we may interact with you and be one with you and one with each other. This and more we ask in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back, everyone, to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. 
I am so excited to share with you John chapter 17. It's almost as if I asked Dustin at the beginning of this series, could I do 17? And I really didn't, because it's my favorite chapter in the whole of John's gospel. Now, there is a lot in this chapter, and we are not going to get to all of it in the next 30 minutes or so, but we are going to hit the highlights and learn from God's Word together. In fact, I have one book amongst the books I was looking at this week that has nearly 500 pages, and it's dedicated just to this one chapter. And also, as I was preparing, I came across a, a, a quote from Ray Steadman, the great pastor, who, when he preached through this chapter in one sitting, said to his congregation, it's a bit like being given a gallon bucket and asked to empty the ocean in an hour. So grab your bucket and let's dive in together. But let's take a moment to set the scene once more to remind ourselves, because a lot has happened in the space of one evening. You remember they're in the upper room and all of this teaching from the washing of the disciples' feet, the meal, the, the giving, the instituting of the sacrament of what we call now communion, everything, all this teaching has happened in one evening in, the, in a, just a few hours. And as we will see in our scripture today, it is far from over. The disciples have really experienced the culmination of this teaching of Jesus. And as we will see shortly in verse 4, Jesus will pray and say to his father that the work has been accomplished, that he's been given to do. But it's a bit like all the coursework is done, but the final is still to come. And that is going to be the cross within just a few hours. Take a look there in verse 1 to begin with. When Jesus spoke in these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Now, if you've been with us throughout this sermon series, you know that that phrase, the hour, his hour, my hour, has come up time and time again. All the way back to the wedding in Cana, where Mary, his mother, comes and basically gets him to perform his first miracle and provide for the festivities. And what does he say there? He says, my hour has not yet come. But now, clearly Jesus knows the hour has arrived. And he says this to his father as he begins to pray. And over the next few chapters, and indeed for us, over the next few weeks, we're going to see what that hour entailed and what that hour resulted in. But today we're going to finish the discourse of the upper room, which, as, he, as I say, has included example, sacrament, fulfillment, very clearly teaching. And now it ends in the only way that would be appropriate. It ends in a time of prayer together between God the Son and God the Father. It's unclear whether this prayer is uttered within the confines of the room or whether it is uh, a pause on the way to the Kidron Valley as they're walking there to cross it. And Jesus is clearly, though, preparing himself. He's preparing the disciples and, yes, even us for what is about to take place, not only in the sense of the physical crucifixion 2,000 years ago, but all of that means to believers today and, indeed, ever since and those still 
to come because the 11 are very much affected by these words of Jesus. The prayer is recounted by John, not just because years later he thought, oh, that, that'd be good to record, that'd be good to write down, but because he knew the importance of it. Because it's not only the culmination of the teaching that night, it really is of the whole three years of teaching ministry. Jesus takes the time to confirm in no uncertain terms the plan and the purpose of God. Because we're not just hearing the words of the prayer, we're seeing how Jesus interacts with his heavenly father. Have you spent time, this is a bit of a rhetorical question because hopefully all of you have done this, but how many of you have spent time praying with somebody else, hearing somebody else pray? And while you agree with them in prayer, you also find that your own prayer life is encouraged, is grown, and your spirit is grown through that time as well, and it's enriched. I highly recommend the discipline of praying with other people in a group setting and allowing the Holy Spirit to inspire those prayers and be heard. Also, the practice of reading prayers that other people have written over the years is very important. Of course, the prayers of the Bible, but also of books like The Valley of Vision. You've heard us mention that book before from the pulpit. Such a great book of Puritan prayers that are deep and meaningful and helpful. The Book of Common Prayer, other collections of prayers, in particular, perhaps the prayers of children. How many of you have read the prayers of children? Anybody? Yeah? There's an innocence there. There's a, a reality and an honesty in the, in the prayers of children that perhaps we, we forget too easily. We don't tap into the way that we could or should. And of course, the prayer that hopefully some of you read this week. I know some of you committed to do that and have told me that you've done it as we've read it together here in John chapter 17. Thank you for taking the time to do that. And I was praying this week that it would be opened up to all of us in new and fresh ways. And although the whole prayer is powerful, as, is, as indeed all of Jesus' words are, the verse that has always stuck out to me has been verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And I want us to take a few moments this morning to look at this incredible chapter, this powerful prayer, through the lens of that one verse, if you like. But before we do that, let's just define what that verse means. To be sanctified has two main meanings in the original text, uh, in, in Scripture itself. One is the, uh, to be made holy, to be more like God, to be more like Jesus. And also the other, which is particular here perhaps, is to be set apart for the purposes of God and to the work of God. And building on the promise that we thought about last week of the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's clearly the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to lead, to direct, to empower, and the work of the church and out into the world by drawing us closer and closer to our God. Now, notice it doesn't just say to be sanctified as a one-time action with incredible benefit. It is not fire insurance that saves us from the flames of hell. 
It's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That's why I was convinced many years ago and haven't changed my mind that verse 17 is really key to understanding Jesus' high priestly prayer because there's the whole purpose of being signposts to the glory of God and the redemptive, life-giving nature of his character, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Take a moment in your own life and think of the ways that you've been set apart for God's purpose and plan. Can you identify the callings in your life? Some are more obvious than others, perhaps. It could be callings at home to be a parent, a spouse, a brother, a sister, a single. At work, to be a good employee or employer. At church, to attend, to plug in, to grow in your faith and to serve God. To be a friend and a mentor to somebody. If you are a believer, you have a calling from God to be his child and live in such a way that it glorifies him. Literally everything we do, the simplest of tasks, can be done to the glory of God. And if that sounds familiar, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Thinking in this way changes the way that we live and view our daily actions. Are they honoring to God? Are they bringing him glory? And we see through this, we see the word in action, which is the title of the message today. Word, the word in action, both written and living. Through this prayer, we will see the action of God sanctifying in the truth and the word is truth. This is true for Jesus, for the disciples, and for us today as believers. Now, most scholars will divide the prayer into three. Uh, verses one through five, Jesus prays for himself. Verses six through 19, Jesus prays for the disciples, the 11. And then uh, 20 to 26, Jesus prays for everyone who will become a believer, everyone who will be a believer from that point until he returns. So we're going to look at these three sections briefly this morning. Verses 1 through 5. When Jesus spoke in these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, this week, I'm not going to be as good a Presbyterian as I was last week, because this week, I haven't got three points. I've got four. And the first one is... The word in action gives glory to God and gifts eternal life. The word in action gives glory to God and gifts eternal life. Surely being sanctified in the truth, in the word, means to give glory to God and to experience eternal life. Again, Jesus is praying for himself here. 
He's praying about what he has done in order to bring glory to God, but also what is about to take place. He's as committed as he ever has been to his sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary and that it will glorify God. Often we sing of the cross in these ways, don't we? We talk about its glory, hymns like, when I survey the wondrous cross, or in the cross of Christ I glory. They talk of the great paradox of Christianity, that an instrument of torture would be seen as a symbol of faith. That the agony that Jesus suffered, and it was agony, the pain, the physical pain, and the separation from his father, even momentarily, undeserved by him. And yet, at the same time, it pays the price for us who truly deserved it. The whole time, it is Jesus' desire to do the will of the one who has sent him. He wants the glory to go to God. This isn't some false humility. This isn't some sort of modesty. It is the reality that all the glory belongs to God. What do you do when somebody gives you glory for an action or a deed? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't take credit when it's warranted, but to take that opportunity to point to the one who really deserves the glory is a great opportunity. And it's important that we can witness to the truth that we have that hope in us because of our faith. We're not all headed for a physical cross. Thanks be to God, right? Because Christ went to the cross for us. And we're to be thankful for that gift which leads us to think about the fact that the word in action gifts eternal life. What does eternal life mean to you? Is it simply being in heaven when you pass from this life? Or perhaps it's life that begins here and continues there? Or it's the driving force behind the reason you want to share this with others so that they can come to know it in their lives? Whilst all of those things are good and important and part of it, what do we see here that tells us what eternal life truly is? It's knowing Jesus. It's knowing that Jesus came from the Father and that Jesus is God himself. That's what matters most. And the fact that eternal life is the gift of God given to those whom he has given to the Son. Now, this does not mean that everything here is rosy, does it? We've already been told in, in, the, in the verses, in the chapters that go before, that being a Christian means persecution. It means the world will hate us. There will be trouble. There will be tribulation. We will be persecuted. Uh, not exactly great selling points when you want to share your faith with somebody, perhaps. However, I love the way a pastor friend of mine has put it, and I've shared this at numerous memorial services, so if you've been to a memorial service and heard it before, hear it again. The key to overcoming all of the suffering and sorrow in this life is not denying it. 
nor thinking on the good things experienced in this life, but rather in focusing on the immeasurable joy to be found in the glory of the age to come. Again, this doesn't mean that all of this life is going to be trouble and tribulation, but it does mean that we can have that peace that we were thinking of last week through all circumstances, through all of the ups and the downs. And in a few moments when we get there, we're going to see that joy is added to that mix as well. As Jesus continues to pray, he moves from the section of praying for himself to the section of praying for his disciples. And he begins, as I mentioned earlier, by stating clearly that the work is done in relation to them and what he has done. He has manifested the name of God. So this is the second point this morning. The word in action manifests the name of God. The word in action manifests the name of God. Verses 6 to 8. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and you have received them, and they have received them, and have come to know in the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Manifesting the name of God is far more than letting them know what God is called or how to address him. It reveals and shows his very nature, purpose, character. He shows us the Father. Sound familiar? If you were here last week, we talked about that. And he ushers in the way for us to be in an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. As the psalmist says in Psalm 9, verse 10, and those who know your name put their trust in you. And those who know your name put their trust in you. But it's more than just knowing the name of God. In order to put our trust in him, we, as I say, need to know his nature, his character, his purpose, his plan, as revealed in the word, the word in action. Bringing God close, but without losing his majesty and his might. Because he is both holy and separate and yet close and at hand. It's no wonder that the temple curtain was torn when Jesus died just a few hours from now. That the, the veil was torn, that the, the way was open for us to stand in God's presence in prayer now and physically when we pass from this earth. Only through the blood of Christ can we do that. Is that the kind of trust that you have in your heavenly father? Or do you still put your trust in all sorts of other things and other people? Again, we're reminded by the psalmist of this in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now today, it may not be chariots or horses. It could be bank accounts jobs, friends, family, just about anything. And in and of themselves, many of those things are not bad and we utilize them and, and, and are part of them on a daily basis. But if they become the most important thing in our lives, if they take a position above God, then we need to flee back to him 
and again, be sanctified in the truth, in the word. You see how important that is? After all, that's the very basis of discipleship itself, to know God as revealed by Jesus and to know as the 11 realized in the previous chapter that Jesus indeed was sent by the Father and is God. Verses 9 to 16, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, yours are mine. I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is praying specifically for the 11, those who will carry on the work and the mission. He's talking about the time that he's been with them. And so the third point is the word in action provides protection, unity, and joy. The word in action provides protection, unity, and joy. Just as Jesus has kept the disciples protected during his time with them physically, he reminds them that he's leaving. And we already know that the Holy Spirit is on the way. And while they're going to suffer persecution because of the world and because of the word, because the world hates the word, all of them, with the exception of John, will lose their physical lives within a few years at the most from Jesus' departure. However, none of them will be lost in the way that Judas was lost. Just this week, I was able to lead a short graveside service. And during such times, I always look to certain scriptures, as you would imagine. And the words that I, sh I shared this past week are words that Jesus shared at a graveside. And they speak of protection, of belonging to Jesus, even through the experience of death. That once united with him, we will not be lost. You might remember a few months ago when we were in John chapter 11, these words, there's a great depth of emotion there as Jesus is standing at the grave of Lazarus, his friend who has died. And Jesus uses these words to give us truth, but also to comfort Martha, Lazarus's sister. In John 11, 25 to 27, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What comfort this protection is for the disciples and for us today, that our salvation is secured. It will not be taken away from us that those God has given to Jesus cannot and will not be snatched out of his hand. Yes, on occasion, we let go of our grip on God. We loosen our grip, but he holds on tight 
to those he has called to be his children. This is how we are able to experience the unity that Jesus prays for for his disciples, to be as close to each other as God is within the Trinity. Except at the moment, we're all six feet apart, right? But we can feel this closeness, all jokes aside, because this unity is not uniformity. We're not all exactly the same, thinking exactly the same things in every minute detail. The mistake that we make is thinking that we have to be like that, thinking we need to be carbon copies of one another, when in reality, our diversity, the different gifts and abilities that we've been given by God go to bring this unity closer together as we all play our part that we are called to do in building of the body of Christ. So not, do not look to your Christian brother or sister and be overly concerned that you don't agree with them on every minute detail or that you aren't exactly the same in the things you do and say. But look to the unity of the word that you have, the unity that is proclaiming the same Jesus Christ. Paul again puts it very well in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all all. The word in action, Jesus himself says this, that as we read in verse 13, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. Amidst the trials and tribulations, the ups and downs, we will have Jesus's joy. Now, along with last week, we thought about peace. We're th now thinking about joy briefly. Um, I couldn't help but put those two together and the verse that came to my mind was our theme verse. Does anybody remember? Good, it's not on the wall yet. Uh, anybody remember what the theme verse is? Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. There's joy, there's peace, and there's hope. This is the attitude that we must have and certainly that the disciples needed as they were sent to take the word to others because surely they had their differences, right? And talking of those others, that's us. And the final section prays for all believers. It prays specifically for us. And the fourth and final point is the word in action prays for us today. The word in action prays for us today. As Jesus' high priestly prayer comes to an end, they're about to go to the garden. They cross the Kidron Valley, they go to the garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus will face betrayal, denial, trial, and triumph. Betrayal, denial, trial, and triumph. Spoilers, that's next week's sermon title. I reserve the right to change it before the weekend. But at the moment, that is what it is. Betrayal, denial, trial, and triumph. So come back next week and we'll talk about that. All of that that he's going to face. 
But Jesus here is clearly praying for all who will believe on him through the word, both spoken, written, living. Verse 20, I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Just as the first disciples were sanctified in the truth by the word, we will believe that God the Father sent the Son. We will give glory to God and experience unity with him and with each other through the work of the Holy Spirit and know the love of God for us that has been offered and the gift of eternal life that has been offered and is received, paid for on the cross. We will know God the Father because of the work of God the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is more than words. This is more than even a prayer. It is a promise that cannot and will not change. And if you know that, or if you are hearing this for the first time and you're hearing it afresh, I pray that you will reread chapter 17 in the days that lie ahead as a prayer and know the assurance of being prayed for by the word in action that God will sanctify you in the truth of his word. To his name be the glory, the honor, and the praise now and forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you love us that much, that you would send Jesus to die for us, to be raised. And Jesus, we're waiting for you to return. As you sit at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, and we know that we are not alone, for Holy Spirit, you are here. Guide our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, words and deeds and actions that they may be sanctified and that we will be set apart for the work in mind. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.